Well, all right. Um, how many of you love the Bible? I hope you all do. It's God's Word. It's God's love letter to you. And it's so amazing. After reading it and, and studying it for over 30 years now, I find that it's always new and it's always fresh to me. And I hope that, that that's your um, interaction with it as well. Because the Bible says it's, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And uh, it's just, when you read it, it's not just you reading it, right? It's reading you. How many of you have ever experienced that? I mean, you're reading it, and the Holy Spirit is taking it and applying it to your life and saying, hey, this is good. Hey, this needs to change a little bit, right? But hey, be encouraged here and be lifted up and strengthened, right? The Word of God is amazing and awesome. So I'm excited this morning to start a brand new series in the book of Esther. It's going to take us through the entire month of March. Okay, so we're not going to rush through it. We're going to, we're going to stay in it and kind of just get everything out of it that we can get out of it. And uh, I'm excited because... This book is one of the most compelling stories, not only in the Bible, but I think that's ever been written in literature. It has heroes and villains. It has love and sacrifice. It has high stakes, political intrigue, and most of all, it has the uncertainty of human experience set against the backdrop of divine providence. And it's an intense and compelling story. And as we go through it, there are so many spiritual life lessons that you can glean and apply to your life. And what I mean is that there are so many truths that are expressed and illustrated here that we find in other parts of the Bible. I counted at least 20 before I even began preparing this message for this week. And I hope to share them with you as we progress through this series. And so now the book of Esther, it's not really a theological book. We don't get a lot of, and develop a lot of theology from the book of Esther. However, it illustrates a lot of truths that we find in other parts of Scripture. And the New Testament says that one of the purposes of the stories in the Old Testament is that they serve as examples for us to strengthen our faith, to keep us on the path of faith and trust in God. So that's how we're going to look at the book of Esther as we progress through it. It's something to be an example for us that strengthens and lifts up and builds up our faith. So are you ready for the book of Esther? All right, here we go. Um, now this message today is going to serve as an introduction to the story. So this morning I have a two-part goal. The first is I want to give you some historical context for the book of Esther so we can understand its message better. And the second is then we're going to look at and begin to unpack the first chapter together. Okay, so would you pray with me as we get ready to look at the word? God, thank you for your word. It's a light to our path, God, a lamp to our feet, God. Now illuminate it for us, God, and encourage us and strengthen us and lift us up and build our faith. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. And everyone said... Amen, amen. All right, so let's look at a little bit of the historical context for a minute. It becomes really important, you know, when reading the Bible to understand as much of the historical context as you can. And there are two reasons for this, right? The first is changing circumstances. You know, I find that some people look at the Bible all as ancient history and kind of flatten it out and think it's all ancient history and all of those people are all just kind of the same. I mean, they're ancient um, people, but... That's not really the case. The Bible uh, covers about 4,000 years of human history. And so the way that, say, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob looked at and interpreted the world was different than the way Moses and, and the Jewish people who were slaves in Egypt looked at and interpreted the world. And that was a little bit different than, say, the way that the 
David and Solomon in, in his time that they interpreted the world and interacted it. And that was different than the way that Ezra and Nehemiah and those in the exile interpreted the world. And also those sometimes who lived in very rural um, Israelite communities would have interpreted differently than people who say lived in these great metropolises like Babylon or Nineveh or, or, or Susa, right? So they're not all the same people, right? So you need to understand a little bit historically each book where it's coming from. And then the second idea is this idea of redemption history. How many of you have ever heard the term redemption history or the redemption story? All right, the idea was that is that sometimes it can be easy to approach the Bible as though it's all just isolated stories with moral lessons. How many of you do that from time to time? You just want a story for today with a lesson for today or something to encourage you for, for today, right? And, and they do have lessons for us, but they're not all isolated stories. They all work together in what we call redemption history or the redemption story from beginning to end. It's really one book, and we find that though it's written over the course of 1,500 years by... Uh, more than 40 different authors over on three different continents. It really has only one story, and it really has one author who's behind it. The Lord God is, is behind the entire story. So it has this coherent, unified message from beginning to end. And because of that redemption story, it's really important to understand kind of the historical context of what you're reading. And so to understand Esther, we need a little bit to take a look at this brief historical context. So Fasten your seatbelts and keep your hands in the pews at all times. Because here's your whirlwind version of the redemption story from creation up till Esther. You ready? All right, here we go. So in Genesis, we start with creation. Everything's good, right? And Adam and Eve are there, but they blew it big time. They fall into sin, and their relationship with God is damaged and broken. Sin separated us from God. Death is introduced to all of creation. Adam and Eve are both cast out of the Garden of Eden, but all hope is not lost. There's a ray of hope. God says that one day, this descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent who, who was the motivation of all of this rebellion that had taken place. And this is the first messianic prophecy. The idea is that one day, someone would come who would restore everything to its original order and intention. Now, fast forward here. Over the next 2,000 years or so, we follow the story all the way up to a guy named Abraham. How many of you have heard of Abraham? All right, so... Um, God favors Abraham because he's a man full of faith. And so God makes this messianic covenant with Abraham and basically says that it's through him and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob, that this promise of the Messiah would come. And so after this, fast forward now another 400 or 500 years or so, and Abraham's descendants, they've moved to Egypt. They've been enslaved by powerful kings. They're in misery and bondage, but God sends them a deliverer. His name is Moses. And you know the story, right? You've read it in the Bible, uh, seen it depicted in movies. And God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh didn't want to do that. But God sent all these plagues and, and forced Pharaoh to let his people go and confirmed this message. And uh, parted the Red Sea that they went over on dry land and the, all the Egyptian army drowned. And God leads them to this place called Mount Horeb or what would later be known as the Mountain of God. Because it was here that God wanted to meet with the nation of Israel. And his purpose is to make a covenant with them, to make them into a unique nation who would be known as the people of God, who would be identified as the people of God. And so here it is, he gives them the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of, of the law. And he, uh, he's saying to them, you will be my people, I will be your God, and this is what I'll do for you, and this is how you are to behave towards me. 
And near the end of all this, just before they're going to enter the promised land, he reminds them of the demands of the covenant again and, and goes, does something unique. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, just before entering the promised land, he gives them a list of blessings that will come on them if they're faithful to the covenant and a list of curses that will come on them if they're not faithful to the covenant. And it's a really, really long list of curses that ends with an exile. If they're not faithful, God's going to kick, kick them out of this promised land. And that after all these promises, right near the end of the writings of Moses, God says this, after I've brought them into the promised land, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. So even in this unique people who are delivered by God, who saw spectacular miracles and amazing provision, even in them, the sin and rebellion problem is so great, God says, I know they're going to turn away from me. But in spite of this, there's still a glimmer of hope. Moses made them this promise. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And you must listen to him. Another messianic prophecy. God's going to send his Messiah. And so the idea of God sending the Messiah is once again imprinted on the people of Israel. It becomes part of their national identity of their national consciousness. So God's going to send this Messiah. And then after this, we have several hundred years, we call it the, the period of the judges, where judges ruled. And it was really a very simple time. They were a semi-nomadic people living among 12 semi-independent tribes. It was very simple living. And then um, at the end of this time of the judges, God begins to appoint kings for the nation of Israel. And King David is really the first king to unite all of the tribes, really, into a unified nation. And now this is somewhere around 1000 BC. So we're about halfway between Abraham, a thousand years after Abraham, and a thousand years before Jesus. And David and his son Solomon rule over the golden age of Jewish monarchy, subjugating all the kingdoms around them and ruling as far as the Euphrates River. But during the reign of Solomon's son, then Rehoboam, there's a civil war, and the kingdoms are divided. I remember the first time I ever read that, I was so, I was so disappointed. I couldn't believe this happened. We're barely into the nation, and now there's a civil war, and there's two kingdoms. The southern kingdom kept the outward forms of godliness. It was known as Judah, and, and, and they kept those outward forms, but they kept wavering back and forth between really serving God and, and serving idols. And then the northern kingdom of Israel went wholeheartedly into idol worship uh, from the time they started all the way until their end. And so for the next several hundred years now, God sends them prophets. And the prophets are sent to warn them and confront them about their departure from the covenant. And if you look at it, there's a remarkable similarity between what Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and what the prophets saying were saying was going to happen if they didn't return to faithfulness to the covenant. And so they warned the people. If they didn't repent, God would eventually expel them from the promised land. And then the Holy Spirit gave them even more insight, and they predicted ahead of time that the northern kingdom of Israel would be conquered and deported by Assyria, and that happened in the year 722 B.C., and that the southern kingdom would be conquered and deported by Babylon. And that happened as well. Around 605 B.C., the first Israelites were deported to, the, to Babylon. And around 587 B.C., the entire city, including the temple and the palace and all of the structures, were destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he captured all the cities of Judah and, and, and carried the rest of the people into exile. And so at this point, we're getting a little closer to our story now. All right, and uh, everything seemed hopeless. It's, everything's all is lost, and um, this messianic kingdom, it seems like it would never materialize. 
But all hope is not lost because these same prophets who had taken the law and warned the Israelites with it and began to write, they began to write about something else. At the prompting of the Holy Spirit, they took up this idea of a messianic kingdom. Jeremiah prophesied that the Israelite captivity in Babylon would last for 70 years. It's amazing how God knows stuff in advance, isn't it? Because in the year 535 or so, a king named Cyrus issued a decree, a Persian king, that the people should return to the land of Israel and begin to rebuild the temple. And so this entourage under the leadership of Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua returned to Israel, and they're struggling now to rebuild their lives. I mean, they had good lives where they were, but now they left all of that, and they're struggling to rebuild their lives, their homes, and the temple in Jerusalem. And you can see all of that described in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. Now, you would think everybody would go back, right? As soon as you hear that decree, woohoo, we can all go back. But not as many of them went back as you might suppose. Many had homes and lives in their new lands, and so for many, that's all they knew, and they elected to stay where they were. And so by the time we get to the story of Esther, here's the situation, okay? Now, 50 years or so has passed since the decree that all the Jewish people could go back to, to their lands. And we've seen Zerubbabel and all of those people go back to their lands, right? And, uh, but yet at the same time, there's all these other Israelites continuing to live in foreign lands while trying to maintain their identity as a Jewish people. And that's the situation we come to when we get to the book of Esther. All right, so let me give you just a few more things about the book of Esther itself, and then we'll dive into chapter one, okay? As you look at the book of Esther, several important purposes emerge, okay? First, it gives insight into what life for the Jewish people of the dispersion who were exiled was like. And it explains the origin of this Jewish festival called Purim, which is still celebrated today. And it provides some continuity of the redemption story as it explains how God once again saved and delivered his people so that the line of the Messiah can continue. And in the process, it inspires us today to trust God and act in faith, whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, we're not sure who wrote the book. It could have been Mordecai or Ezra, but it was someone who probably had access to the royal archives. And, and speaking of Ezra, by the way, Ezra was alive at this point. He probably lived through the, these events, and he, he would lead a second pilgrimage back to Israel about 20 years after the book of Esther, the events of this book. So probably the events of Esther fit right in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. And possibly also Nehemiah may have been alive, a little bit younger, but uh, 13 years after Ezra returns, Nehemiah would return to build the wall. So, and there's one more thing I want you to note about this book before we go on, and it's this. The name of God is never mentioned in this book. And not only that, it's the only book in the Bible where the name of God is never mentioned. One time. And some people have a problem with it because of that. However, even though God's name is not anywhere in this book, his fingerprints are all over it. I mean, if you wanted to charge God with interfering in human affairs, you could find more than enough circumstantial evidence in this book to convict God of interfering in, in human affairs. And so, with all of that in mind now, let's slow down just a little bit and begin to look at the story of Esther. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, 
to Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, pause there for a second. Some of your translations may say Ahasuerus. How many of you it says Ahasuerus? Okay. Basically, Ahasuerus is um, his Hebrew name and Xerxes is his Persian name. Same guy, um, either way. But before we go on, what I want you to get is the idea of the vastness of his kingdom. It says here he ruled over 127 provinces. Most of these provinces were former nations or portions of nations like Israel, Moab, Egypt, Tyre, Assyria, Babylon. And you know, that's a lot of nations to rule over, isn't it? And it says it stretched from India to Kush, which is part of Egypt. So the Medo-Persian Empire that was ruling at the time is the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. Let me illustrate it for you with a few pictures. Now, here's a map of David's kingdom at its greatest. His kingdom encompassed not only Palestine along the Mediterranean Sea, but also the kingdoms of Moab, Ammon, and Edom on the east side of the Jordan, the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon on the north, and Damascus and Syria to the northeast, all the way as far as the Euphrates River. And that's pretty good, don't you think? I mean, considering that most of the kings of Israel ruled over just that sliver of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, about 71 miles wide. Most of them just ruled over that. But David and Solomon, they rule over this, this vast area during that time. Not bad. Now here's a map of the Assyrian Empire. This is the empire that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and deported uh, the northern kingdom and ruled over the southern kingdom as well. Now it includes all of what David's kingdom was, plus Egypt, parts of Asia Minor, Nineveh and Assyria, and as far as the Black Sea to the north, and Babylon as far south as the Persian Gulf. All right? Now, here's one of the Babylonian Empire. This came. This is the empire that conquered the Assyrians. It has everything that the Assyrian Empire and Babylonian Empire had, all of Asia Minor, what is now Armenia, parts of Sudan, all of Persia as far as the border of India. Today, it would encompass parts of Pakistan, Afghanistan, all of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Israel, Egypt, Armenia, and Turkey. I mean, it was the greatest empire the world had seen to that point. And it rose under King Cyrus the Great and reached its zenith under this king, Xerxes, who's in our story today. So, going on, verse 2, it says, At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Susa, the capital city of the empire. It's near the Persian Gulf. Verses 3 and 4, it says, And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. All right, now I want you to see a few things in these verses. First, notice who came to this six-month-long banquet. It's military leaders, princes, nobles, and officials of all the provinces. Now, that's kind of a large banquet, don't you think? I mean, you've got a delegation of important people from each of 127 provinces, and each one would come with their spouse, with their wife, possibly other family members, and servants as well. I mean, the total would have easily been into the thousands of people. And someone asks, why gather all of these important people from all these provinces for such a long time? Well, there may be two reasons. The first is not expressly stated here, but a number of Bible scholars and historians tell us that, and they believe that this Xerxes 
was going to use this time to confer with all of these civic and military leaders for a planned invasion of Greece. History tells us that this very Xerxes came to power in 486 BC, and just a few days later, he did in fact invade Greece unsuccessfully. How many of you have ever seen the movie 300? A few of you, all right? Okay, that Xerxes uh, in that movie is the same Xerxes that we're talking about here. Only the real Xerxes was not nine feet tall. Like in the movie, they made him nine feet tall for some reason, but the real Xerxes is not nine feet tall. Same Xerxes, all right? And so he's likely during this time preparing for an attack on Greece, all right? The second reason for this gathering, and the one that is depicted here for us, is that Xerxes wanted to show off. I mean, the Persian kings often refer to themselves as king of kings. Now, he's not the king of kings, right? But he was a king of kings, in a sense. Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces and all their kings. And he gathers all the important people from all these provinces to display his vast wealth to them. He wanted them all to see it. Because he's preparing for this war with Greece. And he, and he was preparing to demand their civil and military loyalty. And he wanted them to see just exactly how powerful he was. In other words, in case any of you doubt my ability to do this, let me show you all the stuff I have, all my power, all my authority, right? my whole kingdom. Let me show you how much greater. Everything that I have is greater than what you have. Let me show you all of my might so that, that when I ask you to invade Greece, you're going to do so with unhesitating loyalty. right? 180 days of displaying wealth and splendor and glory and majesty and authority for the simple purpose of saying, Here's everything that I have that you don't have. And then, this is immediately followed by another banquet. Look at it, verse 5. When these days were over, the 180 days, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Okay, so first the king entertains all of these important people from all the delegations from 127 provinces for 180 days. Now he's throwing an all-out party for everyone in the city, from the least to the greatest. I mean, that's pretty much everyone, isn't it? I mean, that's all these entourages from the provinces. That's everyone else in the city. And I can imagine uh, that this must have been somewhat surprising for a lot of the people. I mean, imagine that you work in that city for a minute. All right, maybe you're a mason or you're a carpenter, or an ironsmith, or you work with cloth, or you sell food, or whatever. Right? You're just a workaday person in the city. And you receive this invitation to this seven-day feast at the king's palace. Everybody gets invited to the ball. The good news, Cinderella is invited to the ball. You're invited. You can go. So here there it was, in all this extravagance, a seven-day party for the whole city. And the next few verses go on to describe it. Let's look what it looks like. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold. You know, um, last year we bought some couches for the fellowship hall. I can tell you they're not made of gold. All right? Um, the couches in my house, I know the couches in your house, they're not made of gold. These couches are made of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Okay, this is an extravagant seven-day party. How many of you have ever been involved in planning a wedding reception? 
I mean, planning a one-evening party for 100 or 200 people breaks the bank, right? I mean, sometimes nowadays, when you just have a, a birthday party like for your 8-year-old, it, it breaks the bank. They need this and that and all the other stuff, you know, a pony and, and everything else that goes with it, right? A one-day party sometimes can break the bank. Well, here's a seven-day all-out banquet for an entire city with no holds bars. It's coming right on the heels of hosting these delegations from 127 provinces for 180 days. And all of this is simply to show everybody how rich and powerful he is. Going on in verse 9, he says this, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Okay, so in this culture, um, the queen often dined with the king, but also it was not unusual for women to hold a separate banquet. And that was the case here. Queen Vashti giving a banquet for the women. And this is where the story kind of begins to go sideways. It takes an unusual turn. Verse 10. On the seventh day, that is, on the last day of the feast, on the culminating day of the 187-day display of King Xerxes' power, splendor, majesty, and authority, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. All right, so basically he spent 180 days showing all these important people everything that he has and that they don't have, and he's sitting there or lying there, having had several too many cups of wine, and he gets this great idea. Can I tell you, when you've had too much wine, it's not a time to have a great idea. <laughs> Go back and listen to my sermon on that last fall, all right? Um, I encourage you, don't be in this state. He's basically saying, you know, hey guys, i got a great idea. You know, there's one more thing that I have that you don't have, right? It's my wife. Wait till you see her. Uh, she's so beautiful. She's the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom. Wait till you see her. You're going to be so jealous. All right. And, and he sends all these people to go and get her, right? I mean, what a way to cap off and put an exclamation point on these 187 days of boasting. You know, can I just pause here for just a moment, all right, of a, uh, just a break of biblical wisdom? In Proverbs, it says that wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Wine will lead you to make some bad decisions, and Xerxes is making a bad decision. He doesn't see it, but he's really putting Vashti in an impossible situation. Here, let me show you how. Now, when it says that he ordered Vashti to appear in the royal crown and display her beauty, it doesn't really get specific about what that means. We aren't entirely sure. But we are sure that it probably means more than just appearing at her husband's side and shaking a few hands. Now, some commentators believe that when it says that he ordered her to appear in her royal crown, um, that it meant appear in her royal crown and nothing else. Now, I don't know, uh, but there are some commentators who, who believe that. Other historians point to the writings of this contemporary um, ancient Greek historian who lived during this time. Uh, his name was Herodotus, and he wrote about the Persians and how they celebrated banquets. And I read some of that this week. And um, he was kind of disgusted with how the Persians acted at these banquets. And it often involved bringing women in and having them kind of corralled with, with the men at these banquets. And there was a lot of groping leading to other stuff that I'm not even going to go into this morning. You, you know what I mean, 
right? And so um, it was kind of known at that time, a lot of demeaning expressions. And I mean, if you think Harvey Weinstein was bad, I mean, well, for these people, it wasn't even something they did, like, in the cover of darkness or tried, tried to hide. For them, it was just normal to behave that way. Uh, it was out in the open and accepted. And so the suggestion um, of these scholars is that Vashti, waiting the options, knowing what was going to happen, was willing to forfeit her position rather than subject herself to all that. And that, as a matter of fact, that may be why she was holding a separate banquet for the women, because they knew how the men acted during... These, these banquets. And, uh, uh, and then still others point to a Persian custom that the queen, even more than the other wives, was supposed to be secluded from public gates. And that the king was not only demeaning the queen and her office, but also his position as well. Something that he might have realized if he had not been in such a drunken stupor. So whatever the actual reason, it's probably safe to say that it involved more than simply appearing on the balcony in the royal robes and kind of waving at the people for 30 seconds, right? It was much, probably much more than that. It was enough to say that, you know, to make the queen um, hesitate and say, I'd rather risk the wrath of the king than do that. And so suffice it to say, the queen didn't receive this request well. Verse 12, it says, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. So Vashti becomes essentially the first hashtag me too person, right? And when she refused, I mean, she knew there would be consequences. It's likely she knew she would be stripped of her royal position. She knew she wouldn't be queen anymore because though the queen enjoyed more protections than average woman, she didn't enjoy any more rights than average woman. In this type of a kingdom, the queen was not a co-regent with the king, right? He didn't have, she didn't have any authority over anything to do with government or anything like that. She had authority over the king's house and overseeing the house, and that's where it ended. And so she had no rights. And, and when the king heard about it, well, it says this, the end of verse 12, then the king became furious and burned with anger. I mean, the king was used to getting what he wanted. That's what it was like for king. Nobody questioned the king. Nobody refused to question the king. But this was even worse in his eyes. He would have been exceedingly embarrassed by this rather public refusal. I mean, think about it for a minute. He just spent 187 days trying to impress everyone in the kingdom with, hey, this is everything that I have, and I've got all of this power and wealth and glory, and I've got all of this authority to rule. And so he's preparing them with that to trust his authority with a large-scale invasion of Greece. And here, at the very last day, at the very last hour, at the very last second, his own wife tells him to go pound sand. I mean, maybe she didn't use those words, but that's how it would have been coming across to him. Go play in traffic. Go fly a kite. Take a flying leap in a lake. Make like a tree and leap. Hit the road. Make tracks. Go away. Get lost. And don't let the door hit you on the way out. I mean, I think that's how it's coming across to him. You know, even if she just said, No, dear king, I regret to inform you that I am unable to comply with your request at this time. It doesn't really matter what words she used to say it. He's embarrassed. He's insulted. He's, well, well, it says furious and burning with anger. Now, I'm not saying he was right or anything like that or justified. I'm just saying that's how it was in that day. And that's how the king felt. How dare she? I mean, in his mind, how dare she embarrass him like that? 
And so we see in the next several verses that the king gathers his closest advisors. Basically, he calls an impromptu cabinet meeting. Now, this is probably not the most historically memorable cabinet meeting. I mean, here's a bunch of guys, a bunch of drunk guys, trying to figure out what to do with a woman who wouldn't do what they wanted her to do. And this guy, Memucan, he gets up with an idea, and you really have to read this to believe it. He says, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Really? All the nobles were wronged? I mean, all the people of all the provinces have been wronged everywhere? I mean, maybe this is just a little overstated, do you think? A little overdramatic? I mean, of all the wrong things that rulers have done over the years, that dictators have done over the years, this thing does not really rate, does it? I mean, if you know a little bit about history and the atrocious things that rulers have done, this really doesn't rate. All the people are wrong. It's a little bit of an overstatement. Going on, it says, For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. All right, my paraphrase of that is they are scared to death of their wives. All right, they, got a, they think they got a good thing going, and my goodness, they can't let this go on, right? And, and it really sounds a little manipulative on the part of these nobles, I think, doesn't it? I mean, it, this sounds a little bit like the Pharisees telling uh, Pilate, you know, if you let Jesus go, you're no friend of Caesar. I mean, they're so afraid of their wives, giving them a few problems. It's like they're saying to the king, you are no friend of the nobles and the important people if you let this stand. You know, Xerxes, how can you control a whole army and an empire and defeat Greece if you can't even control your own house? That's kind of the message that they're sending. Hmm? Xerxes, how are you going to do that? And then comes this suggestion. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. Pause there for a second. Well, the Medes and Persians, they had this really silly law that said any law that was passed with the king's signet ring could never be repealed. Now, I have no idea how this law ever came about. I mean, it seems patently stupid on its face, doesn't it? To say, here's a law that once a law is made, you can never repeal it. I mean, it sounds to me like that law was probably made during one of these drunken feasts. Like, so, hey, I've got a good idea. How about we do this, right? And now they're living with it. And... Many of you may remember in the story of Daniel, uh, he felt the effects of this law under the reign of Xerxes' father, Darius I, in the famous incident with the den of lions, right? And it will come to play again a little bit later in our story. And he says, Let a royal, royal decree be written that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Then it goes on to say, um, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. I'll bet they were. So the king did as Mimokan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province, its own script, and to each people in their own language, 
proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Well, all right, so here they think they've solved the problem. All right, then they had this, 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 this rebellion of Vashti, and they've solved the problem. And, and so come to the end of this chapter, chapter 1, Vashti is removed from her position, and the stage is now set for God to continue to work behind the scenes. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. So we're going to stop there for now and pick it up in chapter 2 next week. But there's just one simple observation that I want to make about what we've seen so far that will encourage your hearts today, I think. And um, as we live out our relationship with God today in our world, and that's this. God is in control. Can I say that again? God is in control. Would you say it with me? God is in control. Do you believe it? Can you shout it with me? God is in control. At this point in the story, you might look at it and ask, where in the world is God in all of this? I don't see him working. I mean, here we are in Susa. We are physically, it is about as far removed from the promised land of Israel as can be imagined. And the people in this story are about as far removed from the God of Israel as is conceivably possible. There's no fear of God. There's no mention of God, of the God of Israel. There's no mention of the law. There's no examples of godly people so far. Only people who are wholly given over to the expressions of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That's what we keep seeing expressed all through this chapter. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. All the things that John says are in the world. And these people rule the whole world. I mean, they make the decisions for godly people. Here we have people in Israel trying to be godly people, trying to make something of their life. They're struggling just to stay alive. And people are half a world away, are lying on couches of gold, drinking from goblets of gold, making decisions that affect them. And all the while, there's this high-powered political intrigue going on, and it seems like powerful people behind the scenes are vying for control and manipulating events for their own gain. Where is God? In all of this. But even in this situation, even before we get to what happens in the providence of God in the rest of the book, we can see that God is working behind the scenes. Consider this over 200 years before, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied this time. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile and the captivity, the Babylonian uh, conquest of the Assyrian Empire, and that the Medes would conquer a Babylonian Empire that didn't even exist yet. Listen to this prophecy. Isaiah said, I will serve the Medes against them, against Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms. And he will be overthrown like, by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he went on to say this. This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish what I will please through him. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness and will make his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Let me put it together for you. Over 200 years before, through Isaiah and the other prophets, everything that we see here was prophesied. The Babylonians would conquer the Assyrians. The, the Medes and the Persians would conquer a Babylonian empire. The, the, the captivity would be 70 years. And then he named, he named the Persian king 
who would set them free. And this guy had not even been born yet. Say, do you think God has things under control? I mean, it may seem like we're living in a godless society that is hostile to the Bible and to those who love and honor the Bible. It may seem like government officials on many levels and in, in many countries often act with their own interests in mind and with hostility towards people of faith. It may seem like things are out of control. You may wonder, where is God in all of this? And all the things going in my, on in my life, where is God in all of this? Does he realize what's going on? Does he even care? Well, here, as we conclude chapter 1 and look forward, it looks bad and it's going to get worse. But as we move forward, we're going to see that God is working his will behind the scenes. We have this contest set up between arrogant men and what they're doing in the open and God and what he's doing behind the scenes. God is about to take action, about to do something amazing, about to take control. And as we look at our situation today, I have good news for you. God is in control. He's not worried. Nothing surprises him. When something happens in world events that surprises you and things happen that may seem a little bit frightening, it doesn't surprise God. There's nothing that happens that causes God to fall off his throne. Can I encourage you? God is still on his throne today. I talked with him this morning. He's still there. Amen. Someone say amen. Listen to this encouragement. Listen to what he says. And then we're going to wrap this up. He says, in this world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Even though he returned to heaven, he said, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And listen to this from Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings. Have you had some present sufferings? Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we know that in all things, in all things, whatever you are going through, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? trouble... Or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, if you believe that, would you stand up and just give God some praise? Hallelujah. Bless God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask for the prayer councils to come at this time. Go ahead and make yourselves available down here at the front. And what I want to ask of you today, if you are feeling, if you come into this morning, feel like some things in your life that are just out of control, and you've been wondering, God, God, where are you in all of this? And, and no, it, it, you're, it's been hard to keep having faith. I'm going to ask you even right now to step out of your pew. It's okay because we all go through something like that. And come down here and find a place with one of these people. And we are going to pray for you. We are going to believe God with you and to strengthen your faith and to lift you up and encourage you. Would you begin to step out even right now?
Oh, Heavenly Father, we bless your name. Thank you for your word, God, and the encouragement that it is, God. God, we can we pray for all of these who are down here, God. Encourage your people. Lift them up, God. Strengthen them, God. And everyone who has heard the word of God today, God, strengthen your people, God. Encourage your people. Lift up your people, God, all week long. And uh, and build our faith and our trust in you, God. Father, when we see um, things happening in the world, things that look fearful and, and frightening, God. Father, our faith, our trust, our hope is in you, God. So may we be a people who is characterized by a lack of fear, God, as we face our world. As everybody else is running around afraid, God, of things and stuff that's happening, God, may we be characterized as people with a lack of fear because of our faith in Almighty God. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.